tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Before we dive into the interview today, I would just like to wish a happy birthday to our featured guest, Sarah Kay. I hope you have a fabulous day and a fabulous year to come. And I'd also like to say that one of our previous guests, Dr. Quinn Tominski, is also having a birthday today. So happy birthday to you both. Thanks for being a part of what makes How To OT so special. On today's episode of How To OT, I'm joined by Sarah K. Lishman, one of my classmates in the OTD class of 2020 at WashU. Thanks for being on the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super pumped. I'm not surprised because you are always one of the most excited and joyful and positive people in our cohort. I think you've done a lot to make our education fun and enjoyable for me and all of our classmates as well, I would say. Wow, Matt, that is what a phenomenal compliment. Thank you so much. You always add to our experience. So we're very lucky to have you in our cohort. (laughs) Thanks. You're too nice. Um, A fun fact, me and Sarah also have the same birthday. This is true. May 18th. May 18th. It's coming up. Hopefully hopefully we'll be able to celebrate. And if not, we'll do another Zoom call or something. Yeah, definitely. Today, we're going to talk about Sarah's doctoral research project, which is called Cognitive Stimulation Therapy for Individuals with Parkinson's Disease and Dementia. And to start this off, Sarah, I want to ask you if there was something or someone that inspired you to take on this project. Well, I'll start off by just saying that I've always been interested in neurological conditions. I did most of my OT shadowing in neuroclinics, and this is what led me to join Dr. Foster's lab, the Cognitive and Occupational Performance Lab, my first year in OT school. And so what really inspired me to do this project is I wanted to make sure I was doing a project that not only resonated with the research community, but also resonated with the Parkinson's uh, community. We're very lucky. We have a great relationship with the Great St. Louis Chapter of American Parkinson's Disease Association. Um, And so I contacted the OT, who was on staff at the time, Amanda Landsbaum. We bounced around a lot of ideas of what I could do, and uh, she really inspired me and got me on board with CST, Cognitive Stimulation Therapy. They had been doing it a couple rounds or sessions at the APDA. Um, And so she wanted to look more closely to see if the program provides significant benefits for those with Parkinson's disease who have dementia or cognitive impairment. Awesome. Sounds like you got connected with some pretty amazing people and organizations right off the bat to do this research. Yes, I'm very, very lucky. Aaron has been a great mentor and has assisted me with making those connections and keeping those connections. All research projects here at WashU uh, typically begin with an extensive literature review. Let's talk about some of what you found in your background research and literature review, if there's some key findings you'd like to highlight for us. Yeah, I mean, where do I even start? 
It's important to know that PD is actually the second most common neurological condition right behind Alzheimer's disease. Nearly 1 million individuals in America are living with PD right now and 10 million individuals worldwide, so it's a large, large amount. PD is generally thought of as a movement disorder. When people think of Parkinson's, they think of the four cardinal features, including tremor, bradykinesia, rigidity, and postural instability. But the non-motor symptoms can be the presenting clinical feature of PD in over 20% of individuals. Although uh, some of these non-motor symptoms are common with normal aging, one isn't likely to be diagnosed with P PD just due to the non-motor symptoms. So I'll talk, let's talk a little bit about what these non-motor symptoms are because that's what I'm focusing on. There are, as anybody knows, that not every individual is gonna have the same symptoms. Um, some big non-motor symptoms that do occur are uh, behavioral changes that can include depression, anxiety, irritability, autonomic dysfunction, including increased sweating, bladder problems, loss of smell, um, and what I focused on most is cognitive changes. So attention, executive function, memory, word finding, and visuospatial. Since PD's progress is a progressive disease, an individual's cognition is going to continue to decline. Um, and so PD-related mild cognitive impairment, and I'll refer to this as PDMCI, kind of less of a mouthful, is the bridge to PD-related dementia. So actually 20 to 40% of individuals with PD develop dementia or PDD. PDD can sort of be defined as cognitive difficulties are greater and have a larger impact on day-to-day -day functioning that require executive functioning. And unfortunately, as the cognitive impairments continue to decline, Research shows there's a correlation with decline in individuals' quality of life. That paints a great picture of what Parkinson's disease is, what Parkinson's disease and dementia looks like, and all the, how important all these cognitive factors is. But yeah, let's, let's talk about that. What is um, OT's role in working with someone who has Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so I hope I gave a good sum of Parkinson's disease. We got motor and non-motor symptoms that's all affecting someone's day-to-day -day functioning. OT's role, OT's, our main goal in, in general is to promote independence and to be client-centered based on specific needs of the individual. So based on these motor and non-motor symptoms one can experience, interventions that we can do are mobility, fall prevention, fine motor skills, including handwriting, fall prevention, you know, including adaptive equipment, environmental modifications, ways to improve independence in ADLs and IADLs, fatigue management, but what I focus on is our cognitive strategies. And one thing in looking over the materials that you sent me before this interview, I, it really emphasized how important caregivers are to include in therapy and just how impactful they are in the life of someone with Parkinson's disease. Can you talk to us about how important that caregiver relationship is? Yeah, caregivers in general, despite PD or not, are really, really important. I know a lot of us in our cohort were uh, personal care attendants, and so we take care of individuals on a day-to-day -day basis. But at least from my research or from my participants, all of my caregivers were the individual spouses. So we, as our 
PCAs, you know, leave and kind of take care of ourselves and come back as a caregiver, you're, you're, um, or as a spouse, as a caregiver, you're always in that caregiver mode. And so caregivers with PD, it's important because Parkinson's is degenerative and continues. And so it's ever changing as the disease progresses. So in the beginning, caregivers hold the role maybe to include coping, learning how to manage medications, scheduling all these new appointments for therapies and doctors and just general support. But as the disease progresses, caregivers are really relied more on to fulfill those basic needs. And as you can imagine, caregiver burden and stress is going to increase over time. So this can ultimately impact the relationship between the caregiver and individual. And I think it's always really great to think about what can OTs do to help with the burden and well-being of the caregiver, because this can impact the overall care that's provided to the individual with PD. I touch base a little bit on it with my research. The intervention that we utilize doesn't necessarily address or involve the caregivers, but since we're having this 45-minute intervention twice a week, we're hoping that this 45-minute sessions or break allows them to take care of themselves, take the burden off of them, or um, the hopeful outcomes from this program can assist with the basic needs to reduce this assistance from caregivers. That's a great goal. And I think it's something that hopefully you did accomplish and uh, can accomplish in the future as this program develops and evolves over time. Let's talk a little bit more about the specifics of, of your study. And you were using cognitive stimulation therapy, as you mentioned. Can you go into more detail on what CST is? Great. Yeah, let's, let's get into it. Cognitive stimulation therapy, or CST, is an evidence-based intervention geared for individuals with mild to moderate dementia. So within CST, there are 18 guiding principles that are integrated into each session. Um, And what's great and what I love about CST is over half of these guiding principles, OTs already incorporate into our interventions. 18 18 sounds like a lot uh, from an outside perspective. Yes, it is a lot. It can be overwhelming. I'll tell you the principles we already know. We already address them um, in OT. So mental stimulation, continuity and consistency between sessions, stimulating executive function, person-centeredness, Respect, involvement, inclusion, choice, fun, maximizing potential, and building relationships. So, I mean, Matt, you got to be over there saying like, of course, this is what OTs do. (laughs) Yes, it it sounds like it aligns. Cognitive stimulation therapy sounds like it aligns with OTs goals um, very, very well. Right. And so there's only just a couple that we as OTs or future OTs don't necessarily involve in our everyday interactions or interventions with clients. Those are, um, includes new ideas and associations, using orientation, opinions rather than facts, using reminiscence as an aid to the here and now, providing triggers to aid recall, implicit learning, and stimulating language. These are things that OTs definitely have the knowledge and the resources to do. It's just not necessarily involved in every interaction. Absolutely. And for part of your study, you were incorporating a specific CST program. Yes. The Making a Difference program. 
Yes. So the Making a Difference program is training manuals on how to offer CST. And these manuals are fantastic, phenomenal, um, because they provide a very, very structured plan on each session so that the facilitator can really make sure they're including all of these principles. And so they're, they created uh, three different types of CST or they have manuals for three different types of CST. So I did the group version. This is a two times a week for 14 weeks in a group setting around eight participants. There's the maintenance, which is a longer term CST. So you'd have to complete the first one to be eligible for this. And I just completed this, not part of my research, but just as continuing this program for individuals. And then there's the individual or the ICST. Uh, this is a one-to-one -one individualized version. Sessions and similar themes uh, done at home with a caregiver or family member. And we're really excited because my lab partner, Kate Banovitz, is researching this and seeing the benefits of the individual program. And we hope to have both of our results looked at and see, you know, the feasibility between both of these programs. That's great. It sounds like a, a very comprehensive program. Is this something that you have to be certified in order to offer or can you buy uh, this book and start implementing it? To get uh, certified as a facilitator, it's very, very easy. SLU, St. Louis University, provides um, training courses. Um, also, the caregiver manual, so the ICST manual, if you purchase this, it comes with a DVD that provides the training for you. So they make it really, really feasible and easy to um, get trained to be a facilitator. Let's talk now about your specific study. So how did you set your study up? Yes, so I was extremely thankful. I had a lot of assistance from Amanda Landsbaum, Trisha Creel, who were on staff with the APDA at the time, uh, Aaron Foster, my mentor, as well as Tasha Doty, our phenomenal research coordinator. Um, so the APDA actually recruited individuals to be part of the CST class. And from then, once we got those individuals, I recruited um, individuals to be a part of the study. So not everyone that were in my classes were a part of the study. And so we did two waves. One wave was in the spring of 2019, and the other wave was in fall of 2019. We performed assessments about one to two weeks prior to CST start date, and then completed the post-assessments one or two weeks after uh, the course was completed. And what were you measuring in your pre- and post-test assessments? We measured cognition, quality of life, caregiver burden, uh, relationship assessment. So uh, for people with Parkinson's, uh, we did, sorry, cognition, quality of life, uh, geriatric depression scale, um, and the relationship between them and their caregiver. And then the caregivers took uh, caregiver burden assessment as well as the same uh, relationship assessment scale. And then post, we threw in some questionnaires just to see what they liked and didn't like about the program so um, we can adjust the program as well as what they liked and didn't like specifically about each of the classes. Yeah. It, it sounds like a, a great design to inform how the program can grow and continue being used 
um, in the future, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it was great to see. So like I said, this past spring, uh, we did a ma- the maintenance program. And so we already had implemented those changes. This, this uh, course wasn't part of the research, just something along, you know, continuing with the APDA. So it was great to see that the changes that they requested uh, turned out really great. And of course, I'll, with all the changes, I still incorporated those 18 principles. Take us now through the actual class, those 45-minute sessions that you would have twice a week. What would participants do? What would you do as a f- facilitator in that 45-minute span? Like I said, making a difference, phenomenal, because they provided a very structured outline. So we'd start with an opening, and these included introductions. Every class, they'd have like a get-to-know-you question. we do some orientations, so discussing where we were, the time, the year, the season, the weather, as well as each group has their own group name and a group motto. So we'd always go over that too, you know, creating some type of unity and um, togetherness. After our opening and warm up, we go into an article. So this article, I try to make it recent of like something that is happening in St. Louis, the US or the world, sort of neutral. Um, Or if I didn't find anything that I thought my participants would be interested in, I did an article that was related to the theme, that session theme that day. And so after we read the article, we'd have a discussion. Again, we don't do right or wrong answers. It's more of just talking, bringing in new ideas and thoughts. Um, Those discussions were really fun. After our article and discussion, we do an activity that's related to the theme. And some of these themes are sounds, food, using mom, money, number games. Um, and then after we would have this activity, it would be a discussion. Again, no right or wrong answers. And it was just sort of like what strategies the individuals used to complete the activity, what they like, what they didn't like. And I would always, always, always make sure to talk about what we did today in that session And how does that relate to their everyday lives and what they can use those strategies for in their everyday lives. After the activity, we'd have a wrap up, just summarizing what we did during the class, point out contributions. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for sharing that story about this. Um, And then, of course, providing a reminder of the next session and theme. That sounds like a a lot to include in those 45 minutes. I especially love how you as a facilitator would try and make sure the content is applicable um, and help the participants really know how to apply it to their everyday life. Yeah, it's a jam-packed 45 minutes. So we've also altered that in our program is to make it an hour to allow more time for discussion and more time to participate in that activity. That's great. I, I also really find the team aspect of it interesting and wanted to ask if that's done to uh, create a, a sense of community um, amongst participants. Yes, definitely. I want these individuals to rely on each other, to have the support, to form some type of community. Um, and so all the most of the activities, I would have like two parts, an individualized part and a group part. So they're always somehow working together. Um, and that with the working together, I always, I thought of it always as like, teamwork. So how can you be a team with your caregiver, bringing in that caregiver aspect to it as well? 
And what did you find or observe happening to participants or, uh, or caregivers as they were participating in your program? This is really exciting. So in the beginning, individuals were kind of shy or not all individuals, but some individuals were shy, didn't participate, didn't really get involved. And it was great to see as the progression, you know, when individuals start trickling in and before class starts, some of these quieter individuals are striking up conversations with other individuals in the group, um, participating more, offering to read the article or first one to raise their hand to discuss the activity. So you can see a huge, like I saw a huge shift with some of these individuals of really just putting themselves out there a little bit more. Definitely in the beginning, I'm the one that's starting the small chat to get everyone warmed up well before class starts. By the end of seven weeks, the other individuals are, hey, Matt, how was your weekend? How are your grandkids? So it was great to see, you know, them becoming friends and starting this community. And something that happened that are that I wasn't expecting. I was hoping these 45 minutes twice a week, the caregivers would do their own thing, you know, take care of their well-being. And both waves, all the caregivers or 90% of the caregivers actually stayed and they started their own support group. And I know a lot of them still keep in touch today and swap recipes and bring classes, our class snacks. So it was really awesome to see that there was an unexpected outcome. That's awesome. That's, that's really cool. Um, especially the snack part. Yes, I, I very much enjoyed getting treats twice a week. <laughs> and how did your post-test scores compare to the pre-test scores? So we haven't analyzed it all, but I do want to say, I preface, it's a small sample and it's a pilot study, but uh, we did uh, have some statistical significance with cognition. So that's really, really exciting. We used the MOCA, but of course, small, small power, small study, uh, pilot study, but that's all we've really looked at so far. Well, you know, they say the a journey of a thousand miles starts with just one step. Um, oh, thank and, you, Matt. Yeah, no, establishing this program, however, you know, small the study starts out, it's great that you have some positive results initially, and it really indicates that this could grow and, you know, you could help establish a lot of evidence that these are good strategies to improve cognition among this population. Right. Yes. Um, I'm pumped. And that's the whole idea of this is that there has been significant or statistically significance with um, individuals in the Alzheimer's community. But I want to show that individuals with Parkinson's related dementia can also benefit from this program. Can you share an example or story of how this program led to a positive outcome for a participant? Sure. Yeah, this is something I will never forget. And I wish I could have, you know, recorded it at the time or had the ability to record at the time. I was talking with a past participant's wife, maybe about eight weeks after the program ended. And she said that he just was generally happier. He was interacting with her more. Um, he was willing to do more tasks around the house. He was striking up conversations with people he doesn't usually talk to and getting more involved with his grandchildren and continuing to talk to the other participants in our group. And I can't, of course, attest this all to CST, but the fact that maybe part of this CST contributed to his general happiness is like huge, huge for me and it makes me feel so happy. 
Awesome. I want to shift now to some more personal or opinion questions about your whole research journey. And to start that off, I want to ask you, what have you enjoyed most about your project? A couple things, I guess. I mean, really just meeting and building this relationship with my participants and their caregivers. They've meant a lot to me and I still keep in touch with them today. So um, just being part of their community and the PD community in general is really exciting for me. But also through this project, I've made other connections like Lisa Carson and Sarah Peace out of WashU um, also provide CST courses at assisted living homes. So it's been awesome to connect with them and collaborate with them. Also um, creating an even stronger connection and bond with the APDA. Um, I feel like I'm one of them. And so um, working with them, alongside them, providing this program has been a phenomenal experience with the APDA. That's great. As we both know, research isn't always easy and it's not always fun. Um, what's been something that's been difficult about this project? Besides just like getting everything approved, the IRB isn't always my favorite thing to write up. I think really just making this as client-centered as possible. In school, we really um, learn how to make client-centered interventions for just one person. And now this program is asking you to do client-centered for an entire group. So I think that was really difficult because I, I really had to get to know them and what, what each of them, how they each are connected so I can create these um, classes that everyone's going to enjoy. Yeah. And hearing you talk about this whole project and all your research, I can tell you've worked so hard on it all and you're so passionate about it. And you've also made a lot of connections with people um, heavily involved with this population. How would you say that this research is going to influence your future practice and career decisions? I really want to make sure I'm continuing to incorporate those other guiding principles within my practice as a future OT, because I can see, I mean, we don't have it on paper yet, but I can see the benefits of adding these reminiscence activities or, you know, doing orientation, how, how that impacts. But I also just hope to continue to be a part of CST, you know, even though we're graduating in a couple of weeks, I still have some first years that are first year students that are willing to take this over. So I said, I still want to be there. I want to help you guys out. Um, so I think this will guide me in my future practice. I just will always be a part of it. I will always try to implement it. Um, I'll always recommend it to individuals I think it's appropriate for. Yeah, those those guiding principles and some of the skills that it sounds like you've been able to develop um, through learning this programming sound like they'd be very applicable across many occupational therapy settings and applicable to many populations uh, of clients as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what do you hope that occupational therapy practitioners take away from your findings? I want uh, OTPs to have a good understanding of CST so that they can recommend this to individuals they think it's appropriate for, or and or looking at these other principles, like I said, and trying to incorporate more of those principles in their interventions. Um, Maggie Flita and I, I know you just spoke with Maggie Flita. We did a presentation to a couple of practitioners about how they can uh, implement these. Uh, other guiding principles. 
Awesome. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what would you say to a practitioner who wants to apply these principles? How can they incorporate it into their day-to-day? Yeah, definitely. So again, we ch- I think as OTs, we know that if we're working with individuals with dementia, we stray away from those yes and no answers. But instead of just straying away from the yes or no answers, how can we change those questions to make them discussion-based so that individuals are sort of thinking outside the box a little bit and having those new ideas and thoughts. I love the use of reminiscence because I love that aid to connect from the, from the past and connecting it to the present. Always just thinking of um, discussion questions like that. Like if you're working with someone who's walking up and down the stairs or washing dishes, like, did you do this as a kid? What did you like about this? Or if you're walking down the stairs, you know, have you ever had one of those slinky toys? It's, it's a great way to facilitate discussion as well as having those individuals um, participate in reminiscence. Yeah, and that sounds like such a, a unique approach. Asking those types of questions, to me, I would have thought of that more as building rapport. But now I'm starting to learn there's a whole you know, therapeutic technique to asking these types of questions that can be beneficial to someone's cognition and help them improve their life even more. Yes, yes. And we love, I mean, as OTs, we love building rapport. Let's um, put some therapy into it. Uh, I love that. So what resources would you recommend to listeners who want to learn more about the topics we've been discussing today? CSTdementia.com has everything you would need to know. Um, And it also has links on how to purchase the manuals. They do come from London, um, just a heads up, but really that's the best website to go to if you wanna learn more about uh, cognitive stimulation therapy. And if someone is interested in learning more about your study specifically, um, maybe they wanna be updated when Uh, your results are are further analyzed, could they reach out to you? Of course. As you know, Matt, I could talk all day about (laughs) CST. It makes me very happy. Um, Yes, s.k-a-l-i-s-h at w-u-s-t-l dot e-d-u. Awesome. Are you planning on... uh, presenting this research at a conference uh, coming up and or anything like that? Yes. So as of right now, um, Aaron Foster, again, phenomenal mentor, has set us up to present at the St. Louis APDA and hopefully having some national, some individuals from nationals as well as their board attending the the presentation because I think the we would like to start hitting this off nationally with other APDAs around the country. That's exciting. Yeah, very, very exciting. Yeah, and best of luck to you in that presentation. I'm sure it's going to go very well. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, Sarah, I only have one more question for you, our golden nugget question. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask if there's anyone else you'd like to acknowledge or thank um, in the completion of this research. Yeah, I I did not do this alone. I I cannot lie about that. Um, Yeah, Aaron Foster, Tasha Doty, Amanda Landsbaum, Trisha Creel, Maggie Flita, who's been like my rock and really has helped me out a lot. Um, Kate Banovitz, 
um, and my first years have really assisted me with this project and making sure it's gone off with a, without a hitch. Ha has gone through good, correctly? Has all of those has gone smoothly. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Has that gone smoothly. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave all this in, by the way. <laughs> oh, and of course, APDA. Yeah, leave it all in. I'm um, Go for it. I told you it was going to be a little spazzy. <laughs> no, it's been great and it's been fun. Um, and we're all ready to the last question. So, Sarah, what is one thing you learned from this research that you wish everyone knew? I, besides, I'm turning my answer a little bit, besides incorporating the other principles, I want, uh, I want people to understand, or what I learned from this research is that non-for-profits offer so much more than I had anticipated. They have this sense of community and they have all this research and resources and free classes. And I, what I've learned is that we should be, as OTs, be referring to them more often. Awesome, Sarah. Well, that's all I got for you. I want to thank you again for your time, uh, for your hard work, and it's been really fun. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Wow, that's a great question. Every single day, because I love my occupation. OT's goal. What is our goal with this? Is that your next question, Matt? Sorry, am I rambling? No, I think you're doing a great job in that. Well, we don't know this. I'm on vacation every single day, every, every single day. Everybody sour like a lemon tree. I'm just smiling down upon my enemies. Do the shit and love it on a daily. Say you hate your job, but you'll never leave. Never leave, but then it wasn't easy. But right now I'm living breezy. Build ascension from the ground up. Now my hands they ain't so greasy. Feel me? So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life and all the way that you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes sometimes and feel as if I blow away I love the life, I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living, yeah that's what I say I got one life to live and I wouldn't live in no other way I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Every, every single day Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it